Good morning. Um, our text is from Esther 7, um, verses 7 through 10. You'll find that on page 414 in the Bibles in the, chair, in the chairs in front of you. And we apologize for not listing this in the order of worship. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, so he, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in, the, in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Erica. Uh, just to get started, what a great week we had last week. A wonderful time having Brandon and Liz back, having the uh, provisional session. And I think the best news of all is uh, now that we're 10, I think we get to stay up a little later. So I've asked this, the Presbytery, we'll see what they have to say. Um, that's not something that's real. Okay, we are on the downward slope of our Esther's series. Uh, so we have today's sermon, we're going to actually finish Esther next week, and then for the last sermon in this series before we move to Romans 6, we're going to just take a dip into 1 Peter. So that's what we're going for the next uh, three weeks, including today. Uh, just to review the things we hopefully have been learning from Esther, uh, from Esther 1, the first section of Esther, we, are learning, we learned that God is working quietly in our lives. Even when we can't see God working, even when we don't feel him near, God is working. And also, it's good to remind ourselves, the second thing we learned from Esther is that God is working not to our own agenda. He's not fulfilling our dreams, our plans. He has a plan, and we are invited into it. God is working quietly, even now, in all the little mundane things in our lives to see his plan come to fruition. The salvation of his chosen people, to be specific. Two weeks ago, we were looking at Mordecai and Esther, and we saw that God brings about his plan through simple obedience of his people. It's not that we're waiting for, again, a burning bush moment or something like that. We, are, we know what we're supposed to do. God has called us to obedience, and through those simple, small opportunities to obey, God is working out his plan. Today, we get to have a little bit of fun. We're gonna take a, a, a good, long, hard look at the bad guy here. So we have Haman. Uh, in the spotlight today. Uh, to get that started, I want to make a connection for you, a historical connection from Scripture between Haman and Mordecai. So we've already heard that, that Haman's not a huge fan, that's putting it lightly, of Mordecai, and there's some conflict there. He would like to see Mordecai and all of his people destroyed. Um, here is a little bit of depth to that story. Um, if you recall, who is Mordecai a descendant of? Saul. King Saul. So King Saul was the first king of Israel. He was not a good king. 
from God's perspective. He disobeyed. In fact, you can see over and over again, God would give Saul a command and he would actually just interpret it and, and kind of do it the way he wanted to do it, thinking uh, very practically, like, well, this works better for me, so I'll do it this way. I'm technically obeying, but uh, he would not obey. And so we go all the way back to 1 Samuel 15. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to tell the story. Um, if you remember, Haman is listed in the scripture as an agagite, A-G-A-G-I-T-E, an agagite. And it's not that calcium deposit that comes down from the top of a cave. I was corrected. Sorry about that. Um, no, the Amalekites, back in the day of Saul, their, their arch enemy was the Amalekites. And the king of the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15 is named Agag. Do you see the connection here? Agag, A-G-A-G. So Haman is a descendant of the king of the Amalekites, the arch enemy of Israel. So we're setting up kind of this conflict that's gone on since Israel left Egypt. The Amalekites met them. They would not let them pass. There's a whole story there. And so in 1 Samuel 15, the mouthpiece of God, Samuel comes to Saul and he says, listen, God wants you to go. He's going to give you the Amalekites. You're going to defeat them. And more so, you're going to, it's called devote them to destruction. It's a thing in the Old Testament where you went in and nothing survived the Amalekites. Nothing survived that war. And so what happened is Saul went down. God gave him the victory, but he did two things. He did not he technically did devote almost everybody to destruction, but he saved the good animals and he saved King Agag. He saved King Agag. He spared him. He wasn't supposed to do that. So Samuel shows up, and this is PG-13, a warning, okay? Uh, Samuel says this, bring Agag to me, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Just imagine the smugness here. And Agag said to Samuel, the prophet and the priest, surely the bitterness of death is past. And so this statement's loaded. This is not just an enemy that Israel picked out of the hat. There's been an ongoing awful conflict between the Amalekites and the Israelites. And the Amalekites have had no mercy on the Israelites. And so Agag is very smugly saying, surely you'll let me survive. And here we go. And, and Samuel said... If the, if the, well, he didn't say this. If the Bible were an action movie, Samuel would have been the star at this portion, and this would be his one-liner, all right? As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. My goodness, that happened. That's in the Bible. So, this ancient conflict between Mordecai and Haman, between Saul and Agag, between Israel and the Amalekites, that's what we, as we pick up in chapter five, this conflict's coming to a head. It's not just two guys that don't care for each other. There is a deep history, a deep resentment here. And so today we're going to look at the plan of Haman and we're going to see, I pray, how God works in spite of his enemy's plan. So let me pray for us and then we'll jump into the text in Esther 5 through 7. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the richness of your word. And I pray this morning that we would connect with your Old Testament in light of the gospel in Jesus Christ. I pray for all of our hearts, all of our ears, that we would listen this morning. There's so many distractions in life. So many distractions. And I pray this morning for myself. I pray for my Family, I pray for my church family that we would be open to what you have for us this morning, no matter how difficult, no matter how encouraging, 
Whatever you have for us, I pray that you would bring it to us by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning through your word. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, previously in Esther, uh, Esther, we left her where she uh, had agreed to obey Mordecai one last time here, and he said, you need to go to the king and tell him about this edict to destroy all the Jews. And she says, what? If I perish, I perish. She makes the choice to obey at great risk to herself. Well, to catch you up, she went in. The king was very pleased to see her, so she survived that risky, obedient moment. And and what happens in that moment is she begins to uh, basically hatch a strategy to reveal Haman and his plan, to to, to expose what he has going on. And so what does she do? She invites the king and Haman alone to a a multi-day dinner party. This is a great honor for Haman. The king, this is probably a pretty normal thing, but this is a great honor for Haman to be involved in this kind of intimate setting. And so uh, we see in verse 9 that he loves this idea, but we also see that it's not enough for him. Look at verse 9 of Esther 5. Haman's just been invited to the party, and Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. So the joy of the invitation is short-lived. He sees his enemy, Mordecai, and all of that happiness, all of that contentment, whatever it was in his heart, wiped away. He, He is obsessed with Mordecai. He's obsessed with the fact that Mordecai will not honor him the way he desires to be honored. And so we're going to do in the the following verses here in chapter five, he begins to uh, kind of uh, close the ends of his plan, the final phase of his plan. So we're going to do this morning, the general outline of what we're looking at is going to be the plan of Haman, the, 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 the the motive, the means, and the opportunity. Um, So let's take a look at the motive. So again, we see it here. He does not like Mordecai. Mordecai will not honor him. He does not like the Jews. He's a descendant of the Amalekites. All these things are part of his motive, but it gets much deeper and much, uh, there's much more at stake here. So first, look at verses 10 through 14 of chapter 5. I just said a moment ago that that Haman is obsessed with Mordecai, and I think that actually if you look at his own words, uh, we can see that he is sick in his mind with obsession. It's, It's a very deep level of unhealth here. So look at verses 10 through 14. Nevertheless, so Mordecai has once again disrespected him. Nevertheless, he restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. So he gathers together his most trusted uh, ad- advisors. And Haman, just think about this conversation that's happening. He gathers his friends and his wife together and listen to what he talks about. Haman recounted to, the, recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of all his sons, the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow, also I'm invited by her together with the king. I mean, this dude is just bragging. Imagine how insufferable this is. Come, let me tell you about all the wonderful things about me. But here we go. Here's his obsession. Verse 13. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. All this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Obsessed. He has, all, he, has the, the, he has a silver spoon in his mouth. He has everything he could want. Power, position, possessions, all in this kingdom. He has the ear of the king. 
But the fact that Mordecai is sitting there and doesn't honor him, it, he, everything loses its luster. So his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high, it's very high, uh, be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman and he had the gallows made. And his plan, we'll see here in a moment, was to go early and tell the king, we gotta do something about Mordecai. All right, so, so here we see the obsession. His motive is purely about himself and his honor. And Mordecai won't give it, so he wants to get rid of Mordecai. Well, it gets worse. <laughs> Haman gets up early, he goes to talk to the king. Well, the king that night uh, had dealt with some insomnia. He couldn't sleep. That's what the scriptures say. He's sleepless. And he does what many of us do. He has somebody come read a boring book to him. So he has this guy come and he's reading the book of memorable deeds. So this servant is reading about all these things that people have done in the kingdom. And, and remember what happened. Mordecai saved the king. He saved the king from assassination, but no reward was dealt out. And we thought in the moment, well, that's a raw deal. Well, here the, the king is recounted to from the reading of memorable deeds that Mordecai saved his life from that assassination plot. And he says this to the servant, what has been done for my servant Mordecai who saved my life? And the servant says, nothing, my lord, or something like that. I don't know how that works. Um, nothing's been done. Nothing's been done. And so the timing of this, it gets real juicy. The author really knows how to tell a story. Haman is walking into the courtyard. Imagine this in your mind. He's walking in the courtyard. What is he coming to do? To demand the life of Mordecai. The king is awake in the wee hours of the morning and he says to the servant, what have we done for this man? How should I honor him? There's nothing's been done. And so he says this, and you go to verses four through 10 of Esther six. And the king said, who is in the court? You can see it happening. Now Haman had just entered the court of the king's palace to seek, speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king, king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Okay, freeze. We're going to finish this passage in a second. He came for a purpose. Nothing means anything to him until Mordecai is dead, right? He, he has a moment where he thinks the king's talking about him. What is the natural outcome of this conversation? He should say, please kill Mordecai. And the king will be like, what are you talking about, right? But no, listen to what he says. And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought. He's thinking about himself, which the king has worn. And the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set. The horse has a crown. That's amazing. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials. And let them dress the man, uh, the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse to the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus it shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. Okay. He has an opportunity to do what he planned to do. Instead, what does he want? He wants more honor for himself. It's all selfishness. It's all arrogance. And here's where the plot drops. Verse 10, the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Ouch. The knife turns. What he wanted for himself, 
his selfishness ends up being the exact opposite of what he planned to do that day. Haman is highly, highly, highly motivated to get rid of Mordecai, more, more so than ever. Haman's obsession with his own honor, his demand to have it, even from the king, mixed with the hatred he has for the Jews and that personification of that hate and Mordecai, he wants Mordecai destroyed now more than ever. And the Jews as well. Now, if you like crime shows, you know that motive doesn't matter unless you have means. Well, let's get this straight. Haman has the means. Haman has a position with the king. He's the only one invited to this party with Esther. He, he's, in, he's over all the officials in the whole kingdom. He has power in the kingdom. He has possessions. Remember, he personally funded this genocide of the Jewish people. And not only does he have the motive and the means, he has the opportunity. Have you noticed so far in Esther, Xerxes will just do whatever people suggest to him. Have you seen this? Hey, have, go get ladies and make one your wife. Okay, right? And so he's like, hey, kill the Jews. Sure, make it happen. Edict, boom, stamp it. He, and so I think Haman knows this. He was going to tell the king, we got to kill Mordecai. He probably had full confidence. The king would say, sure, sounds great. Motive means opportunity. Now, we know what happens. Erica read what happens. We know the fate of Haman, but let's pause before we get there. One of the things about scripture for us New Testament church age Christians is that we, since we know the end, sometimes we glaze over some things and we miss the moment. But here's a moment. Let's stop for a moment. Haman, the most powerful official beside the king, hates the Jews, hates Mordecai. He has the, 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 the motive, the means, and the opportunity to, to destroy them all. So let's soak in that moment what it means, what it feels like to be a Jew in Persia. What does it feel like? Knowing that your life, an edict has gone out that there's a date and a time of your demise. Your children will be killed. Your possessions will be split amongst the people around you. Even a faithful Jew, if we're honest, even a faithful Jew that trusted God, this would have been a confusing time. God, why is this happening? It had been overwhelming. What do we even do? You can't just escape Persia, right? It's the, it's the empire of the time. It could even be terrifying. They're coming for our children. Put ourselves in their place. This is not a comfortable time. This is not an easy time. It's a confusing, terrifying, overwhelming scenario. There probably were many who thought, well, this is it. It's been a great run, God's people. Nice to know you. But we see, church, as we have through all of Esther, God is working despite the plans of his enemies. Despite the plans of his enemies. Look at Esther 7, 2 through 6. So one party is down, the second one is coming up. Haman has had to endure this humiliating thing, leading Mordecai around the town on a horse with a crown on it, which is awesome still. And he said on the second, it says this in, the, in Esther 7, on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Xerxes also strikes me as a spontaneous guy. He may have re uh, uh, regretted offering half the kingdom, but who knows? She didn't take it. Uh, Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, 
Let my life be granted to me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold and my, I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would, I would have been silent, but for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. And so King Xerxes said to Esther, this is, isn't this amazing? He's acting like he doesn't know about it. He signed an edict to destroy the Jews. But he says this, who is he? This gives us an idea of how aloof he is as a leader. Who is he? Where is he? Who dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, the wicked Haman. Haman was terrified before the queen and the king. Church, this should be an exciting moment as we're reading this story. All the pieces are coming together. All the way back between Israel and the Amalekites, Saul and Agag, Esther losing her parents, Mordecai adopting her, her being obedient to her father, Queen Vashti being sent out, the, the, the king making an unusual uh, 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 collection of, of all the beautiful ladies in the kingdom to make one his queen. Mordecai's faithfulness to the king and, and, and to God's law by reporting the assassination plot. Esther's faithfulness and obedience of her father again and going in and reporting, uh, going in and, and talking to the king when, when it was risky. And so we can see God working despite his enemies. And then we come to the passage we read this morning. We see how this all resolves. This really made the king upset and he rose in his wrath from wine drinking and went into the palace garden. He's cooling off a bit, I suppose. But Haman stayed to beg for his own life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? At this word, as this word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai whose word saved the king is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, and the king said, hang him on that. And they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. God defeated Haman through his own villainy. Do you see this? You see how the evil plan of Haman came back around and it's the very thing that destroyed Haman. His own plan, his own gallows, his own hatred, his own arrogance, his own selfishness, all those things are what God used to defeat him. And so it's important, church, that we understand this. Evil then, evil now, is not a constructive force it doesn't build up and succeed. Evil in and of itself is a destructive force. Evil will always destroy itself. Psalm 94. Listen to this. Verse 23. He will bring back on them. He will bring back on them their iniquity, a fancy word for sin, and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. Sin destroys itself. This is one of, it's a long discussion about devoted destruction. It might be disturbing to hear about that, but this is one of the examples of, of why that's something in the Old Testament. Evil destroys itself. And so here's the thing. This is a good 
beginning to the answer the question beginning answer to the question why does god allow evil in the world he uses evil to destroy itself god uses evil to destroy itself Evil cannot overcome God's people. Evil cannot be sustained. In the end, every molecule of evil will be destroyed. No exceptions. I think that brings some texture and some, some, some good thinking to, well, what about that sin in your life that you're holding on to, that you're committed to? It's not going anywhere. It's a destructive power. To continue on this line of thinking, I want to draw our attention to the New Testament. In the New Testament, at a crucial moment in the history of God's salvation of his people, the devil, may I remind us the devil's finite, he's not infinite, sometimes I think we give him more credit than is due, the devil made a strategic decision. He made a decision. He didn't know the future. It might be sacrilege. He, he threw a Hail Mary. I'm not sure if that's allowed, but he threw a Hail Mary. What was his Hail Mary? If I could destroy the Son of God, if I could succeed in destroying the very Son of God, God in the flesh, my, my jealousy, my hatred for God and his people would finally be relieved. Would finally be relieved. And let's, let's go further. What was his plan? He had the motive, means, and opportunity. What was his motive? His hatred for God, his hatred for his people. And let's get this straight. Satan still hates God's people. He hates us. He had the means. The religious leaders of the day, Rome, the government of Rome, they, were all, they all were servants of Satan. Jesus himself called the Pharisees sons of Satan, sons of the devil. And he, he had the opportunity. Look at Luke 22. I'll write down this reference. Luke 22, 1 through 6. Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, who was, one, was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers who might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Motive means opportunity. Satan had a plan to destroy God's people, to get revenge against his arch enemy, God himself. And how did that plan turn out for Satan? How did it turn out for him? His big move to end the son of God, his strategic decision to end God's people, it was turned in on itself in the same way that Haman was defeated by his own plan to hang Mordecai in the gallows. Where did he end up? On the gallows himself. Satan was defeated by hanging Jesus on the cross. That's how he was defeated. His plan, you, you can imagine a finite being like Satan thinking, did I really do it? No, sir, you did not. This is your undoing, the death of Jesus. In some sense, we could say that God used evil and turned it upon itself and in the ultimate end game to destroy all of evil and its clearest expression in the cross of Jesus Christ. Church, do we, do you, do I, do we see how this simplifies our lives? Do, do we see how this simplifies things for us? All we need, all we need is Jesus. All we need is Jesus. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to outmaneuver the enemy. We don't have to be more politically savvy than our enemies. We don't have to control the kingdom. <laughs> we, 
We don't even have to destroy our enemies. Because Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross, we actually don't have to destroy them. We have an opportunity to love our enemies. Remember Brandon's sermon last week? Remember what he said? He read from Romans 12. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This next phrase, I'm not sure we actually believe it. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, instead of vengeance, what should we do? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Church, we don't have an Esther. We don't have an Esther. Because what did Esther do? Or look at this next week. Esther won an opportunity for the people of Israel to defend themselves. We don't have an Esther. We don't need one because we have Jesus. He defended us. He defeated our enemies. There's no battle after Haman on the the gallows. There is a battle after Haman on the gallows. There is no battle for us after Jesus on the cross. It's the end of our enemies. He's conquered the things that actually threaten us and he's done it already. And so we can be content with just having Jesus. Just having Jesus. Our ultimate enemy, sin, death, devil, Jesus is the only one that could have defeated them and he's the only one that did defeat them because he's done it. It's It's done. It's been done on the cross. And so church, when we feel like those ancient Israelites did, when we're confused, God, what's happening? <laughs> when we're overwhelmed, what are we gonna do? When we're terrified, they're coming for our children, whatever, that, whatever we're scared of, what can we do? We can recall the fact that God is working despite our enemy's plans, despite his enemy's plans. And so what is God calling us to do? What's our job? What's our hope? Our hope is to trust his work, his work, not ours. And he's not just saying sit and do nothing. He's saying, look for me working in the small ways in the mundane things. Understand that I have a plan. That plan is the salvation of all of my people. And, and his plan for us is to obey in the simple ways. Here, we have just a couple of things. We can feed the hungry, quench the thirsty. We can bring good news to those who don't have it yet. And we can live our lives knowing and trusting and living as if our enemies are defeated already. Church, as we transition to the Lord's Supper, I have a question for me, I have a question for you, I'm gonna ask it out loud. Is it possible I mean, the answer is yes, it's possible. But um, is it possible that in our finite minds and in our broken hearts and in our sinful natures, we somehow, even by a little bit, underestimate God's provision and power for us? Is that possible? It is. I I know I do it all the time. And so when we think about this idea that our enemies are defeated already, there's something in us that wants to doubt it. There's something in us that wants to not quite, well, well, but what's the caveat, Pastor Ransom? Here's the reality. We can thank the Lord 
for a moment like this, we can thank the Lord for the Lord's Supper because he's given us this tactile, real thing to remind us that he's a provider. God's a provider, not just in the day-to-day stuff, not just in the day-to-day stuff. He is a provider of our justice, pure justice. He's a provider of our mercy, pure mercy, pure grace. He is a provider of vengeance over evil. He, will, he, he gives us eternal security. These are the things that God has, past tense, provided for us, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so this morning, if you believe those things to be true, the Lord's Supper is a reminder of an infinite number of promises that are true, whether you believe them or not. For those of you who are here, if you don't believe those things, I want to tell you something. The gospel's free. You don't have to like do something or read this book or, or like there's no like entrance exam. All you have to do and be is a sinner. All you have to do and be is to need salvation. And the gospel is free for you. And so who doesn't want justice? Who doesn't want mercy? Who doesn't want vengeance over evil? Who doesn't want salvation? All we have to do is say, Jesus, I believe it. And it's ours. So this morning, if you do believe it, if you believe that you're a sinner, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way, which is the testament you make when you come into the aisle and you take a piece of bread and you eat it, you're saying, I am a sinner and this is the only way I can be saved is Jesus Christ. If you believe those things, you've made that profession, you've been baptized, you've confessed your sins, we'll have a moment to do that in, a, in, in just a second, then you are welcomed in. You're, the Father says, come, be reminded of what I provide for you. If you don't believe those things, don't just stop by saying, okay, I won't eat. Ask the questions. Do I want mercy of the kind that I've heard? Do I want grace of the kind that I have heard? Any one of our elders, any, myself, Steve, any one of our pastors, any one of our folks who are here, our life group leaders, whatever, they'd love nothing more than to walk with you through those questions. So I urge you to, to ask them. Let's take a moment here. Let's take a moment to pray Let's confess our sins honestly to God. Let's get it all out of the way. There's nothing you need to hold back because all of it's forgiven when you confess it. That's a promise and it happens. So say it in your heart to God, confess it, receive forgiveness. I'll draw us back together and we'll serve the Lord's Supper. Let's take a moment. Father in heaven, forgive us. Forgive us when we doubt your provision. Forgive us when we look at our circumstances and we fret, we worry, we feel uncomfortable, we feel out of place, we feel overwhelmed, and forgive us when we don't recall what you have done and exactly what it means. And so I pray this morning that you would bless this bread and bless this wine and juice, not to be some kind of hocus pocus magic, but to be a reminder and an actual nourishment for our souls. 
you are present with us. You promise it. When two or more are gathered, I will be there. You are here by the power of the Spirit, and we are nourished by your grace. So I pray that that would be our experience as we eat and drink together as a church family, that we would be nourished in that way, that, that we would be reminded of your great providence, that you work despite our enemy's plans. No matter how established they are or how, uh, how sure they may seem to come to pass. Thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood, which was given for us in love. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to get uh, four elders up here if I could. A few instructions for you all. Uh, You're going to come forward one row at a time. Uh, Come down the center aisle, grab a, a little cup with bread in it, grab a little cup with some kind of liquid in it, 